Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. This is day six of the 12 days of Christmas, and some years we get two Sundays during those 12 days of Christmas. This year, we have but one to shine the unique Christmastide spotlight on salvation. Now, traditionally, in the first uh, Sunday after Christmas, the gospel passage focuses on the Holy Family, and we read a story about Mary and Joseph and Jesus. We ponder a difficulty or a puzzle that they encountered, and we look to imitate them, and that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. Um, Today's gospel story is a really straightforward narrative. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem with a group of neighbors and relatives to celebrate the Passover, and this is a feast that celebrates salvation, the deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt. But on the trip back to Nazareth, when they start to settle in for that first night, Mary and Joseph make the discovery that their 12-year-old son is nowhere to be found. No one's apparently seen him all day, in fact, and it slowly dawns on them that he must have been left all the way back in Jerusalem. Now, there's nothing to be done but to backtrack as fast as they can and find out what's happened. Um, They stay the night, probably a sleepless one, followed by an anxious day of travel, and then another night without him before they find out where he is. And you can imagine what it might be like to experience the helplessness and fear of that situation, all the possibilities coming to mind. Perhaps they were remembering all those boys that were killed in Bethlehem 10 years earlier in an attempt to kill Jesus. They would have been justified in literally fearing for Jesus's life. They just didn't know. They were filled with distress and uncertainty. Now, when we read these stories in scriptures, we don't always get to know how the people in the stories, inside the stories, are actually experiencing things emotionally, um, which I often like to know. Uh, But in this case, we do know how Mary and Joseph felt. Scripture tells us when they find Jesus in the temple, he is amazing, the religious teachers, with his wisdom and his insight and his understanding. When Mary and Joseph see him, they are amazed as well, but perhaps not for the same reasons. Listen how their experience is described in verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, this word for astonished indicates that Jesus' mother and father were overwhelmed with emotion when they saw him. And the word that's translated as great distress refers to deep anguish and trauma. And Mary's question is framed in the language of lament and complaint. Mary and Joseph have been in confusion and deep distress for two long nights with a hard day of travel in between. And now they find their son alive and well, which is awesome. But he also just seems to be having a great time hanging out with the teachers and the priests, which is confusing to them. No wonder they were overwhelmed when they saw him. After maybe 30 or 40 hours of anguish over a missing child, you kind of expect a really good explanation. (laughs) 
hearing the first century equivalent of, sorry, I had the volume on my cell phone turned all the way down, is not going to cut it. <laughs> and indeed, from Mary's perspective, Jesus has some explaining to do. Finding herself in painful circumstances, Mary has internalized this not as an unfortunate misunderstanding. She's felt wounded by this experience. However gently or entreatingly Mary may have asked this question, it's an accusation. Why would you behave this way, Jesus? We've been in anguish without you. We've been suffering deeply because of you. We are your father and mother. Why are you treating us this way? And how can it be that at the very moment that Jesus' uncommon wisdom and insight begin to shine forth in his life, it is against this backdrop of the pain and confusion of his parents? What might this story have to show us about the interplay of salvation and human suffering? Sometimes the closer and more intimate our relationship with Jesus is, the more betrayed we feel when we experience suffering. In verses 41 and 43 of our passage, the author Luke is making a point that Mary and Joseph were very pious people, pious in the very best sense of the word. They were sincerely devoted to God, righteous and devout Devout Jewish families were expected to go up to Jerusalem at least once a year, but it was permissible for only the men in the family to attend. However, Mary came up every year. And they didn't actually have to stay for the whole feast. Two or three days of the week-long feast were considered sufficient to meet religious obligations, but they stayed till the feast was over, Scripture tells us. This was a devout couple committed to worshiping God And at this point in history, there could have been no two people on earth more intimately familiar with the person of Jesus. Add to that the fact that Jesus, being without sin, was probably a highly responsible, loving, thoughtful kid. For all we know, this may have been the very first time that any action of Jesus brought his parents pain. Sometimes we grow to expect that our intimacy with Jesus will give us an edge in avoiding suffering and confusion. I am susceptible to this myself for sure. Even though the Bible makes it very clear that we can't do a complete end run around suffering, I find myself harboring expectations that my faith will somehow enable me to power through difficult circumstances without really suffering. Or I hope that my personal relationship with Jesus Christ means that while I might not know the future in all particulars, somehow, doesn't it mean that it's possible for me to get some insider tips in what decisions to make so that they'll turn out okay? It just seems reasonable that if Jesus is my co-pilot, I should really have an edge in human suffering. Is that reasonable? Wasn't it reasonable for Mary and Joseph to expect Jesus to act in a way that would prevent their suffering anxiety on his behalf? Can Jesus be trusted? I think I was about 12 years old myself, the same age as Jesus here, when I first began to ask these types of questions. The Bible does not give any assurances that Christians can expect to avoid pain 
uncertainty, or suffering. But if we can't trust Jesus to protect us from distress and uncertainty, what are we trusting him for? Earlier this year, my husband Joel needed to have a spinal tap as part of the process of diagnosing some health issues. He had had the tap done on a Monday, and then he had a bad reaction to it. Horrible headaches, nausea, back pain. By Wednesday, he'd gone 24 hours without eating or drinking. He was getting dehydrated, and he couldn't stand or sit without pain. So we spent a good deal of the Wednesday before Thanksgiving in the emergency room at Illinois Masonic Hospital asking for corrective surgery uh, for the original spinal tap, something called a blood patch, to fix the problem. And I vividly recall the experience of sitting for hours in that room in the ER. Joel spread out uncomfortably on a narrow cot over there, kind of isolated in his own pain, while I sat uncomfortably over here in a warped plastic chair, waiting, isolated in my own anxiety and distress. Our church fathers have a word for what I was experiencing in that moment and for what Mary and Joseph likely experienced as they looked for their missing son. It's the word desolation. And among other things, it's the experience of the absence of God. It's not the actual absence of God. No one who has received the Holy Spirit can be separated from him. But it is an experience where you just cannot feel the presence of God with you. Desolation can bring with it not only distress, but confusion. When the doctor finally came into the room in the ER to get us to sign a consent form for the blood patch Joel needed, he explained that the procedure had a 90% success rate. Now, normally, a 90% success rate sounds pretty good, but at that particular moment, all I heard was that there was a 10% chance it wouldn't do any good. And coupled with all the usual risks of entering the spine with a needle, unintended punctures, infection, something called brain herniation, which sounded terrible, I felt genuinely unsure for the moment about whether this was the right thing to do. Distress and uncertainty were pressing in pretty hard. We did consent to the procedure, and I really tried to pray that it would go well. I remember wishing I could pray a really long, earnest, heartfelt prayer full of confidence, full of peace, full of faith, a prayer worthy of a believer who has trusted Jesus all her life, a prayer worthy of someone who worshiped a trustworthy God. But you know, the best I could come up with was, well, God, I hope it works. <laughs> that was it. Isn't intimacy with Jesus supposed to bring us freedom from distress? A degree of certainty about the future, a, a clue as to which way to turn, where to look. We want to experience the peace that passes understanding and the wisdom from on high at all times, and especially at moments of crisis. And when we don't, we wonder, can Jesus be trusted? It's ironic then that Luke, the man who recorded this very story, wrote his book to increase our certainty about Jesus the Savior. Luke collected eyewitnesses' account for his gospel, and it's probable that he heard this story from Mary herself, so that his readers might have confidence in what they'd been taught about Jesus, the Savior. So I love that when Luke writes this story, 
he sets it up, he frames it out for us in terms of this kind of doubt. We find ourselves asking with Mary and Joseph, can Jesus be trusted? Let's return to where Mary presses this very point and asks this question for us. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. She emphasizes that bond of trust and responsibility between Jesus and his parents, reminding him twice in these two sentences of what she expects of him. Son, she says, we thought we could trust you. Explain yourself. And this is where this whole story pivots. When Jesus speaks for the first time in all of Scripture, up to this point in the story, we've experienced this incident through the eyes of Mary and Joseph, who are very relatable to us. They were the ones who went up to Jerusalem. They took Jesus with him. They detected his absence. They searched for him. They found him. They asked the questions. Up to this point, they're the protagonists in the story, doing all the things. In last week's sermon, Chad Magnuson pointed out that as a baby and as a toddler, Jesus had no agency. When we are little children, things happen to us. Things are acted upon us, and we have no agency of our own. And Jesus was no exception. But here and now, at this very moment, the center of gravity shifts, not just for this small piece of this story, when Jesus is first recorded thinking, speaking, acting for himself, but at this point in the history of our world, Jesus Christ, incarnate son of the living God, offers up his very first recorded words in history. And true to the man that he will become, Jesus answers Mary's question with a question of his own. <laughs> Why were you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus chooses this moment, the moment where his parents are confronting him with their distress, to state unequivocally his awareness of his divine identity and his divine mission. Mary is moving to bring Jesus back into her experience of distress and uncertainty, but Jesus is pulling her forward into faith and trust and ultimately calling her to focus on the saving work of God. It's as if he's saying something like, you have good reason to trust me, mother. I know who I am. You know who I am too. You call Joseph my father, we both know that God is my father. You know I came with a very specific purpose and calling on my life. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house doing my father's business, which is to bring salvation to you and to the whole world? This is a pivotal moment in Jesus' relationship with his parents, and by extension, it's a pivotal moment in the relationship between Jesus and all of humanity. Who is this child, and what should we expect from him? Jesus is very much a fully human 12-year-old boy, and as such, his parents had what felt like very reasonable expectations about how he would behave in relationship to him. And at the same time, he was also the only begotten son of the eternal God, come for the express purpose, not just to love and serve Mary and Joseph, 
as an obedient son, but actually to save them, to save all of humanity and all of creation from sin and death and destruction. And that is where he was and what he was doing. Even with all the angelic visitations and the testimony of shepherds and of wise men and the prophet and the prophetess in the temple who had already proclaimed this reality, it was hard for Mary and Joseph to comprehend that Jesus had a mission that involved them intimately, but which had facets and dimensions that extended far beyond them as well. His work of restoring fallen humanity is far deeper, more powerful, and more efficacious than we can comprehend with our limited scope in our limited human lives. This story then illustrates the tension that exists in Jesus' relationship to the rest of humanity. There's a focus here on the special, unique qualities of wisdom and insight that set Jesus apart from his peers. There's also an emphasis on the fact that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and mankind in the same way that all human beings can develop and grow and mature. Unlike the gods and goddesses of mythology, Jesus did not spring forth fully formed from the head of Zeus. He was as human as any 12-year-old kid. Would my visual aids come up here? This is Lorelai Radicke and Gus Damiani, and they have graciously agreed to let you look at them <laughs> for a moment as you contemplate Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. Nothing about the way that Jesus looked would have given his community any reason to suspect he was anything other than a standard-issue child. <laughs> his parents expected him to behave like a good Jewish boy would, a boy whose first duty was to his father and mother. Now, it is the work of every normally developing boy and girl to differentiate themselves from their parents, to discover who God has called them to be and what he's called them to do. Lorelai and Gus are discovering and will be discovering these things for themselves, and God bless them in that work. Mary and Joseph had specific expectations of what that process would look like for Jesus and how these normal familial bonds would play out in the mission of Jesus Christ. You guys can sit down. Thank you. Thank you. But there's more than that even going on here. The normal work of growing up for Jesus is interwoven with something utterly unique in all of history. The creator of the universe, the author of our salvation, the Alpha and Omega, the Son of Righteousness, has come in human flesh, and he is carrying healing in his hand. This is the message of Christmastide and the point of this story. Ready or not, the, salvation, the work of salvation in Christ has begun, and it began with Jesus, fully God, fully human. At the tender age of 12, Jesus possessed extraordinary insight and wisdom, and he also possessed fully an understanding at this point of who he was and what he had come to do. His question, did you not know that I must be in my father's house, is rich in meaning. When he says, I must, that's the same phrasing. Those are the same words he uses later in life, each time he speaks of the saving work he's come to do. In Luke chapter 4, after he has healed people in Capernaum, the people entreat him to stay. 
They want that healing from him. But he answers, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And in Luke 9, after he asked the disciples what they believe about his identity, what they understood about who he was, he reveals more about his mission, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, probably some of the very same men he had this congenial conversation with in today's gospel, and must be killed and on the third day be raised. This word must indicates a compelling necessity that is deeply connected to the desperate rescue mission Jesus has come to put into action. He has not frivolously caused his parents' anxiety by remaining behind. Furthermore, the thought translated here as, I must be in my father's house, can also be translated as, I must be about my father's business, or I must be concerned about the things that concern my father. It speaks of a strong identification not only with the person of the Father, but with the duties, purposes, and mission of the Father. However mystifying or frivolous or deeply insensitive Jesus' actions seemed to Mary and Joseph at the time, Jesus knew where he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to be doing at that moment. Had his parents been better able to see their son as he truly was, they would have known where to find him. But pain and confusion make it hard to remember that what Jesus offers us is not protection from the terrible side effects of being broken people living in a fallen world, but complete and total deliverance from death. We all crave relief from the symptoms of sin and disease when they manifest in our own specific lives. Jesus came to vanquish evil, and disease once and for all. We'd settle sometimes for pain management. Jesus is going for the absolute cure. We keep trying fruitlessly to grab the serpent by the tail, but Jesus came to crush his head. There is no shame in feeling anguish and uncertainty. This is the human experience, and there are real limits to our understanding. It's hard to anticipate or understand what God is doing. But the message of the gospel is that Jesus saves and we can trust him to do it. Now, it's possible that this story about Jesus triggers unhappy memories of a parent or maybe another person in your life who is not able to properly hear and attend to your emotional distress. Maybe there was someone who neglected your legitimate relational needs because they always had more important things to do somewhere else. And maybe we fear that Jesus, like the flawed human beings in our own lives, is trying to underplay or discount our anguish and shaming us for not appreciating that he has bigger things to do. But that is not what's happening here. In fact, Jesus in his very humanity chose to be with us to become flesh and suffer with us in every way. Jesus is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. And actually, a gospel doesn't give us insight into how Jesus felt in this story. I like to think that he was kind of exhilarated at being out on his own and, and happy with excitement to kind of be apart from his parents for the first time. But it's also possible that he 
felt sad, that he was lonely, that he was uncertain about where he's going to sleep for those two nights, what he was going to eat. Jesus does not do an end run around suffering. Jesus, at this time of history, when he took on humanity, took on the real limitations of humanity as well. Among other things, that meant that if he stayed in Capernaum to heal more people, then he couldn't also be reaching people in Cana or Bethsaida or Samaria. Later, Jesus would explain that the Holy Spirit would be able to come to be with us when he bodily left this earth. You and I have a real advantage over Mary and Joseph in this story. When Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, he couldn't be traveling with them to Nazareth. When I go to the emergency room with a hurting family member, I do have the presence of Christ dwelling with me. Nothing can separate us from the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, regardless of our perception or emotional experience. Jesus came as a baby, grew to become a boy, and then became the man of sorrows. Far from despising our anguish and uncertainty, Jesus dignified us by his participation in our sufferings. But he didn't stop there. He didn't come merely to empathize with our suffering and our uncertainty. He redeemed our suffering by taking it all to the cross with him, the unique mission of Jesus. Where we are weak, Jesus is strong to save. And what that meant for Jesus in that moment was staying in Jerusalem in his father's house, attending to his father's business, even if it meant that his parents would accuse him of failing them. In ways that far exceed our ability to comprehend it, their salvation and ours depended on this vital link between the boy Jesus and his father in heaven. The pushback that the 12-year-old Jesus gave his parents is a challenge to us as well. We may be overwhelmed by circumstances spiraling painfully out of our control, experiencing deep anguish and confusion. We may not even be able to access an awareness of the presence with God, of God when we most crave that connection. But the good news of the gospel is that none of that disqualifies us from benefiting from the very great salvation Jesus won on our behalf by his incarnation, by his life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. After Jesus has boldly responded to Mary, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Luke reports that they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. But you know what happened next? Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them for the next 18 years. Despite our spiritual ignorance and cloudiness, despite our repeated failure to comprehend who Jesus is, despite our inability to differentiate between what is desirable and what is necessary, Jesus is as tender-hearted and servant-hearted toward us as he was to Mary and Joseph. Our distress does not separate us from the presence of Jesus. And our confusion doesn't disqualify us from reach, reaping the benefits of his saving work. Jesus knows what he's doing. And although the day when every tear will be wiped away is in the future, it's a day beyond Christmas tide, this is a reality worth pondering in the here and now. We can't do better than to follow the example of Mary here. 
In verse 61, after all the story is told, Luke reports that Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. If it was Mary herself who told, to, told Luke what happened that year at the Passover, she was very open about how mystified she was by her son and honest about the fact that she really struggled to understand who he was and what he was up to. But despite the pain and the uncertainty, her ultimate posture toward Jesus was one of faith and trust, of wonder even. She did not receive his challenge as a rebuke to be resented, but as wisdom to be cherished, kept, treasured, meditated upon over a lifetime. We can do the same. Even in the midst of distress and uncertainty, we can treasure up in our hearts the assurance that Jesus is at work on our behalf, and there is nothing in our circumstances or in our frame of mind that can derail the mission of salvation he is enacting for our sakes. The Apostle Paul describes the relationship between our suffering and this great mysterious hope and trust in Christ this way. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Keep and ponder this Christmas mystery in your hearts, dear brothers and sisters. Do it by the power of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.